0: When it comes to a design of a new civilization system, actually saying what a desirable civilization is is not a trivial thing. It's actually a super fucking non-trivial thing because we can see that everybody has very different ideas about what a desirable civilization are. <clears throat> and those ideas are often totally uncommensurable. You talk to a shaman and they want to see a civilization where we're much more connected to nature and much more connected to tribe, and much more connected to a sense of spirituality and don't separate us, and you talk to a utilitarian and they want to see us transcend biology and the physical universe completely, upload our consciousness to the cloud, and live in a purely digital universe. And those are obviously radically different definitions of desirable, and we don't have an ethical framework that is commensurable with science that can actually give us a basis for that, flag that topic and let's say that we actually have to address that. But the first thing that most of us can agree to in terms of what is desirable is that the civilization doesn't self-terminate. It's, it's, it's not a good design if it is intrinsically self-terminating by the structure of its own architecture.
1: Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the Cash App and coffee seriously disruptors.fm/cash to support us support your fix and save money on coffee and now let's get on with the program
0: optimism oftentimes means a perceptual bias where we pretend that things that are problematic aren't actually problematic or we pretend that things that we want to do are going to be easier than they actually are and that it is actually a bias to seeing clearly And I have no interest in that kind of optimism, which is why oftentimes it gets contrasted with what people call realism. And what I'm interested in is seeing things clearly, including both what is beautiful, what's working well, and what's problematic and really hard, and then taking an empowered approach to making it better. So there is a certain kind of optimism of capacity to be able to respond effectively, but it is optimism in in possibility, not optimism as a distortion on actuality.
1: Understood. And what are you focused on today?
0: uh i'm focused on a number of things in the biggest sense we can say that i'm interested in the topic of civilization design how do we design a civilization which means how do we design macroeconomy how do we design our systems of governance and collective sense making and choice making how do we help design culture and our collective shared value systems and meaning making frameworks and infrastructure and technology that creates a world that first Is actually a sustainable, viable world. So it is not a self terminating world. Um, and that means address the underlying causes of existential and catastrophic risk. And then beyond that, that makes possible progressively higher qualities of life, you know, for everybody. And so that obviously is a lot of things. That's the future of education. It's the future of medicine. It's the future of trauma healing. It's a you know, future of macro systems. It's how we go about technology design. But any of those on their own still within the context of the rest of the systems that contextualize them uh, in, in the current way is not adequate. So I, the, the envelope is civilization design.
1: And basically civilization doesn't think broadly enough about the big picture. So we optimize incorrectly.
0: Yeah. if. There's a bunch of places we'll optimize for short term in ways that are worse for the long term. We'll optimize for some agents in ways that is damaging to other agents and to the commons, which then of course leads to rivalrous dynamics where they're also seeking to do that, and everybody has to increase their power to win rivalrous games, which is increasing the total amount of externality in the system and risk in the system. So you know, we as a species we are powerful enough now that just acting with our evolutionary motives but with radical technological levers on those evolutionary motives is not only no longer adequate, but is definitely an unstable equilibrium that will self-terminate if we don't actually get a basis for choice making that is big enough to hold
1: the size of
0: choices technology empowers us to make.
1: So we're running into the situation where we've out evolved our ancestry, so to speak, technologically, and we're coming to a point where a evolution's not following Necessarily where it needs to be on a mental and emotional maturity sense, in terms of one person. I mean, t- Donald Trump can blow up the world if Donald Trump really wants to and gets enough people on board. We're getting to that type of situation. Is that purely due to exponential technologies?
0: Well, you know, nukes are not an exponential technology formally, meaning nukes don't give us a radically better ability to make more nukes. We can argue that, of course, the ability to protect ourselves allows us to keep developing technology. But it's not the same kind of exponential technology as the way that computers give us the ability to make better computers. But it's still a <laughs> a very big technology, right? It's a technology that can, if you think about, all other animals' tools are mostly built in. And the tools that they evolve to use are the same tools. They don't really change the tools that they use. They're not tool evolvers, even if they're a tool employer. And we figured out because of prefrontal cortex and the capacity for abstraction, we figured out tool design and tool evolution so we could see a corporeal capacity that we have, right, the, our, the way that our fist could hit, and we could make a hammer, a stone hammer, then we could make a metal hammer, then we could make a bullet that could extend one type of what a fist could do, and all the way to that ICBM. So if we still have the same type of dis- choice-making basis, which is, you know, r- rivalrous dynamics are intrinsic to evolution. But there's a really key thing is that the rival risk dynamics in nature are bound in a very specific symmetrical way, meaning that because the whole ecosystem co-evolves, as lions are getting faster over a very long period of time, as they're becoming more effective predators, the gazelles are also getting better at getting away. And so you don't have, even though there's a, a micro rival risk dynamic between them, there's actually a symbiotic dynamic between them at a macro level because of the power symmetry. And if, of course, lions got 100x more lethal in one generation and the gazelles didn't, the lions would eat all the gazelles and then starve to death. And that happens where an animal is so successful relative to its environment, it actually debases the environment that it depends on and goes extinct. So nature doesn't even select for individual species. Only over the short term. Over the long term, nature selects for self-stabilizing ecological niches, where the whole niche is actually sustainable. And what technology has done is break the symmetry between humans and other humans, and humans and the rest of nature in a way that is, no, that is not a stable equilibrium anymore. As you mentioned, Donald Trump or Putin, they're individual people. And you know, if you, if you think about the lion, right, there's a symmetry between lion and gazelle, and there's also a symmetry between lion and lion. The most powerful lion is only a little bit more powerful than the next most powerful lion, and not that much more powerful than an average lion. And if you say how many multiples of power compared to an average person. Does a Trump or a Putin have? You're looking at, like it's hard to calculate, it's millions or billions of X. And when you look at our ability to cut down forests or pull fish out of the ocean with mile long drift nets, the ocean hasn't gotten that, you know, commensurably faster at reproducing fish. So we are debasing the evolutionary substrate upon which we depend. And so like a way of thinking about it is that we are still modeling ourselves as peak predators, but we're peak predators with exponential tech no longer in symmetry with the rest of the world. That is an unstable equilibrium that self terminates for sure. And so the basis and even thinking, you know, our social Darwinism basis of this is how nature works. Yeah, but nature doesn't have those kinds of asymmetries. With those kinds of asymmetries, we have to work in a way that is different than evolution had worked. I agree with most of what you're saying, but let's
1: play devil's advocate. Let's say humanity is on the path of expansion, primarily due to the capitalist system that we have. So we need to build more to be more successful, to be more economic so that more people have prosperity, et cetera, et cetera. So far that system's worked because we've had unlimited, so to speak, resources. Well, we know that's not true and there are externalities that go into specifically the environment where a lot of this has happened. What about the possibilities of space where we have more space, so to speak? Not both with resources, pollution, etc.
0: Well, we can talk about why that is still not viable and also why it is gruesomely undesirable from kind of any ethical framework. The idea that we act so parasitically that we ruin our home planet, so we start moving our parasitic action into space, so we can unrenewably exploit as much of exploit and pollute as much of the cosmos as possible. It is just in. An, I, I won't even try and argue it in an absolute sense. I will say it's an aesthetically repugnant idea to me, and I think most people who think well about it. But we can also say it doesn't work. It doesn't work because we're pretty far from being a spacefaring people, in my assessment, currently. The time that we have to get civilization right is less time than we have to get a meaningful percentage of population to be sustainably spacefaring in gamma rays and low gravity environments and things that are actually pretty significant. Like we evolved on this biosphere and our our, uh, evolutionary binding with it is a big deal. I, of course, think that we'll become a transplanetary species at some point. But it's not only that the externality hits the environment, yes we u- we use resources unrenewably and then turn them into waste and so the linear materials economy with exponential growth on a finite planet leads to depletion on one side and accumulation on the other, which is toxic on both sides there's also no sign that all the kinds of things that we need are in local universe, like yes, you can get some platinum and gold and asteroids, but that we could actually extend our exploit exploitation in that way meaningfully, but as we are increasing our technological power, we're increasing it across a number of fronts. So if you think about kind of the evolution of the thing we call civilization and the evolution of technology, you can think of it as the evolution, and you mentioned capitalism as a driver, you can think of it as the evolution of rival risk games. And so you have tribes that at a certain point start competing for scarce resource. And so then some tribes will merge with other tribes to be bigger, to be able to kill or protect themselves from the other tribe. They start working on having bigger tools. They start working on having a better narrative so their people don't leave. They work on being better at taking resources from the environment. So basically the competition happens at the level of we can compete economically in terms of resource extraction. We can compete in terms of information and narrative, control the information about the environment, disinform the other guys, and have an orienting narrative that's harder to leave and more coherent, and also in terms of force projection and military. Now, all of those growing, anyone who grows it, who has some new asymmetric tech that provides competitive advantage, the moment they deploy that tech, everybody sees it, reverse engineers it, and you just up the level of power on the whole playing field. And so you get to a world where we have the military power that no one can actually deploy it and win. Everybody loses. You get win-lose becomes omni-lose-lose at a certain scale. And you also get with exponential tech where smaller and smaller players and more and more players and more radically multipolar dynamics and more disenfranchised players get catastrophic level technology. And so you can't even put something like a mutually assured destruction on it. That is, again, a fundamentally unstable equilibria. And when you realize that information is a source of strategic competitive advantage, if I know where the water is or where the gold is or whatever, then in a win-lose game, I have advantage. Not only do I want to hoard that information and make sure the other guys don't get it, but I actually want to disinform them. But with exponential information technology, exponential disinformation that is split test optimized to my specific audiences with all of the behavioral cues, et cetera, built in, and all sides being incented to do disinformation and disinformation Happening, the sides happen even within an organization. You have two intelligence agencies within one country competing for the same percentage of the budget. And so they will actually get into disinformation with each other, and two people competing for the same job will. And so you get this fractal competition that leads to fractal disinformation. That information ecology, where we get worse and worse sense making with bigger and bigger. Actuator potential, right? The technology is giving
1: us the ability to make bigger choices that are progressively less well-informed that again, it self-terminates. It does. But how do we transition from something that is very obviously problematic yet baked into all of us in terms of how we've been brought up? That's the question. Well, the first thing I would say
0: is, you know, and now this comes back to your question, am I an optimist or a pessimist? I'm obviously not seeing the current structures through the rosy glasses of thinking that we can retrofit them and they'll work. But then what I'm also committed to is not coming to this question and saying, it's hard, so let's not stop asking it. So the, the process has been asking it really in earnest and exploring possible solutions and then seeing where they're not adequate and then continuing to explore it. The way Edison did a light bulb, right? But here it's civilization. So when you say they're very baked into us, there are some changes that will, of course, happen generationally where the people more ready to make certain change within a culture, the the fast adopters of certain kinds of new ideas will prototype a system that other people will not be ready for. The effectiveness of that system will lead medium adopters to want to participate after they've seen it. The kids who are born into that system will have it as the new normal. Their kids will, will not even have that much memory of the previous dynamics. So some things will happen generationally. Some will happen via prototyping, fundamentally ground up new civilization models at smaller scales that, that show that have new economic systems, new governance systems, and new infrastructure systems and culture systems that change the rival risk dynamics. And some of it will happen by projects that do retrofit the current system to be both less destructive and more ready for bigger change, even though it's not long term sufficient. We can dig in more on any of those areas.
1: Basically, we're moving towards a world where we either solve these problems or bulletproof your Teslas. It's kind of, it's kind of what we're headed towards because we have the challenge as increasingly as automation and AI come in and take away vast numbers of unskilled jobs. We're getting into a situation where it seems much more reasonable, possibly necessary, to get into some type of possibly universal basic income or alternatively designed system. The problem I see is that that system would challenge the existing system. So if you want to set up a new country in the U.S., good luck kind of deal, especially when the, the nations are the ones that have the monopoly on force.
0: As you think about it, the, you know, the U.S. had to, to be created. It had to you know, leave Britain, and it went and found this new territory that was uninhabited. But of course, it wasn't, right? Like it was built on the slavery of one people and the genocide of another people to be able to have this chance to do its new prototype. And that's not a viable model moving forward anymore, because even if it was a reasonable thing, which it isn't, it um, the the militaries of the world are big enough everywhere and interconnected enough that we just can't do that kind of thing anymore and make it through. So how do we do it? It's tricky, right? Because the actual constitutions of countries, the foundational law, as evolutionarily valuable as they were at their time, some of them are also not adequate. So like when we look at the basis of rivalry, the way we think about private property is actually one of the things that we have to evolve and and not to communism or socialism or capitalism, like fundamentally new systems that have different properties in any of the systems that we've ever tried. We can get into some of the structures of what that could look like. And But you can't actually do them within this structure of law. So there are prototypes that can happen within existing countries, like at a village level where people are trying to Prototype different social dynamics. And that's necessary and meaningful, but it's not a new civilization until it is a full stack civilization from scratch and it doesn't require import. It makes all of its own tech. This is where the people who are focused on being a seafaring nation, which is kind of on the way to being a spacefaring nation, have really an important idea, which is if we undertake the great project of building cities at sea, several things happen. One is they can have sovereign law. And They are also free from land that people have ideologic attachments to, the land where their forefathers died for such and such. Also, in the process of doing it, we're actually engineering scarcity out of the system. We're actually building new beachfront and building new desirable territory. And one of the key answers is you can't have abundance for everyone if things are worth more when they're scarce and worth less when they're abundant. You have a, as soon as I value scarcity, then I have an incentive to artificially protect and manufacture scarcity. So you have to change economics at a deep enough level that we value what's actually valuable, not the kind of fiat value of that leads us to having gold just sit in bars in a safe not doing anything and valuing scarcity and then artificially driving it. And so one of the answers is how do we deal with scarcities? Well, we work to
1: engineer them out of the system. And this is an example. An example of this happening in real everyday lives would be in San Francisco. People want to add more housing because there's just not enough housing and the locals don't want more housing built because that would drive down the prices of their homes is a simplified explanation for this. So with uh, with the seafaring nations, obviously, I can see some allusions to blockchain. I imagine we'll go there in a second. But in your opinion, does something like this work? So the only the only way that a new nation could be formed would be if the if the big brother allows it to it's kind of like the little kid that's wants to play on the team, but he's five and you're 10. And you can beat him up if you need to or want to.
0: Well, throughout history, we've definitely had this issue that the The systems that proliferate are the proliferative ones, not necessarily the ones that we would judge as good by any kind of deep assessment of what good is. And so there have been, (laughs) there were plenty of cultures that invested more into the quality of life of their people than militaries, and they got slaughtered by the warring cultures. And that's, you know, in a very simplified sense why we don't have the matriarchal cultures and a lot of the earth-based cultures. And so we don't want to do that experiment again. That experiment's already been done. So if you say, okay, within a rivalrous context, you have to at minimum not lose. So then of course, everyone's focused on how do we actually create strategic competitive advantage against the current things. And now it is still playing the same game. How do I Uh, win at force projection or resource extraction or disinformation. And the moment it comes up with something that works and deploys it, everybody else has it and etc. So we have to actually do something very different, which is how do you make a system that doesn't lose, but that isn't focused on winning that game. And so it's focused on this not the ability to have power over others, but the ability to resist others having power over it, so it's focused on being able to maintain its own integrity rather than force projection, economic force narrative force force projection of any kind and so does there's a few ways that that happens. one is you know does a defensive only military capacity is that required during a transition? Of course, that would be required during a transition, but to come upstream from there, new systems will need to have export if there, if the new systems that we're talking about, like, there's plenty of people that want to get together and make uh, new systems based on all kinds of ideas. But those ideas are not based on a deep assessment of what is fundamentally not sustainable about our civilization. And is it addressing it? Is it addressing the generator functions of X-Risk well enough that this new model is actually based on necessary and sufficient criteria for viable civilization? One of the things that we find as we're mentioning that this Competitive drive leads to competition over information, leads to disinformation, damages the information ecosystem, and even just more mundane things like the the best computer that science would know how to build can't actually be built today because the IP is partly owned by Mac and partly owned by many different companies and can't be synthesized. And the same is true with anything. So even the richest person in the world can't buy what science knows how to do. And if the IP could all synthesize and if the information was being shared in real time, so the resources were not going into kind of gross duplication, how much better could we do? And if we had no incentive to disinform or withhold information, but all the incentive to share and synthesize information, that information ecology would actually be radically more innovative. And so the source of competitive advantage is actually having created anti-rivalry within itself. The anti-rivalry leads to a higher degree of social synergy, which leads to a higher degree of innovation, where then the export can actually be solving problems for other countries that they can't currently solve for themselves. So you get a relationship of dependence rather than of
1: threat. Have you seen the new Avengers movie, the Black Panther? I haven't. I would like to see it. Interesting. So it has um it has similar dynamics in play with a very advanced civilization. I won't spoil it for you or anyone listening. But are you saying then that the best system or the best way to transition would just be It would be open sourcing everything of sorts. We have to go
0: into a deeper idea set. When we talk about open source, we still assume private property ownership and just open sourcing the ideas. And so you start to reach limits of where that makes sense. Let's say that open source
1: is the first toe in the water of what I would suggest. Then what would be what you would be suggesting? You said you had thought about some potential structures and how this could be done.
0: Yeah. So this is... A topic that elicits an almost religious degree of emotional reaction for a lot of people, because people have a religious-like attachment to capitalism and to, uh, say, libertarianism and laissez-faire ideals, and automatically assume that anything other than that is Stalinism, or something that will degrade into Stalinism. And so... I can say that what I'm going to propose is different in fundamental type and structure than anything we have ever called an economic system to date, because all of those systems are inadequate. Capitalism obviously won the game of winning game dynamics between those systems. And so we wouldn't want to pick a shittier version of the shitty systems we've had. We need a fundamentally new one. I'm saying that so that uh, people's instant reaction, oh, he's a communist, maybe can chill out for a minute. So we. Whenever we're designing something, we have to start by saying, what are the design constraints of what a good design would actually be? What are we trying to design and how do do we know what good design even means here? And so when it comes to a design of a new civilization system, actually saying what a desirable civilization is, is not a trivial thing. It's actually a super fucking non-trivial thing because… We can see that everybody has very different ideas about what a desirable civilization are. And those ideas are often totally uncommensurable. You talk to a shaman, and they want to see a civilization where we're much more connected to nature and much more connected to tribe, and much more connected to a sense of spirituality and don't separate us. And you talk to a utilitarian, and they want to see us transcend biology and the physical universe completely, upload our consciousness to the cloud and live in a purely digital universe. And those are obviously radically different definitions of desirable. And we don't have an ethical framework that is commensurable with science that can actually give us a basis for that, flag that topic. And let's say that we actually have to address that. But the first thing that most of us can agree to in terms of what is desirable is that the civilization doesn't self-terminate. It's 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 not a good design if it is intrinsically self-terminating by the structure of its own architecture. And so if we say, well, what is the what are the architectures that do self-terminate? We can, and I'm doing all this because before proposing an economic system, we have to know what an economic system is trying to do. And otherwise, we're going to just take the ideas that we're used to, the same foundational economic thinking and axioms and just keep rejiggering the combinatorics on them. And there is no solution in that space that is adequate, I propose. So we say, so here's a way of thinking about it. And I wanna present two kind of generator functions of, self-termination of existential risk. And first, kind of for historical context, we can say, when we think about all of the previous great civilizations, the Egyptian empire, the Roman empire, Mesopotamia, the Mayans, the Incas, the Aztecs, any of them, we notice that none of them still exist. They all collapsed. And when you look at why they collapsed, you read books like The Collapse of Complex Societies by Tainter. You see that even if there was a siege that happened, they had defended against bigger sieges for a long period of time, or dealt with bigger famines, or dealt with bigger internal conflicts. They lost coherence over time, slowly had a process of losing coherence that ended up leading to losing the adaptive capacity to deal with the kinds of things they had dealt with. So it is the precedent, like the actual ubiquitous precedent that all the things called civilizations that we've experienced so far self terminate And one of the major differences now is we don't really have an American civilization because America without trade couldn't actually build its the stuff that it depends upon. We get our resources from other places in the world, a lot of our manufacturing and tech and et cetera. And that's true for every country in the world. So we have this globalized supply chain mediated civilization. And so the collapse of that is a collapse at a scale that has never faced the world before. And when we look at the collapse of those societies previously, we see that Environmental collapse was often a part of it. They had they cut down all the trees, had unrenewable agriculture, caused desertification, couldn't feed their people. Desertification is a thousands of year-old human story. We just are doing it at way bigger scale now. And so where we created environmental fragility, we can actually create biosphere fragility now. That's a different, you know, scale, but of the same kinds of issues. So the issues we're talking about that create existential risk are the same kinds of issues that have always created problems for civilization that have led to war and have led to environmental destruction and collapse of societies, just multiplied by exponential tech now. And but the drivers are the drivers have always been. It's just exponential tech is a forcing function for having to solve them. So I'm going to present two drivers of all those things and then say that a new economy has to solve both of those drivers, a new and it won't you can't think of an economy independent of a governance system and a culture and the technology that mediates it, which is why we think about integrated civilization design. So one of them that we talked about, source of self-termination, is that rival risk dynamics have to be symmetrically bound to be stable. The way we talked about in the beginning is a case in nature. Rival risk dynamics multiplied by exponential tech self-terminates because the, in rival risk dynamics, we cause harm to each other and or cause harm to the commons in the process of advancing self, whether self is a country or a company or a person or a family or a tribe or whatever. Exponential external externality and exponential rivalry self-terminates on a finite playing field which is why i try and think about space but we are still on a finite playing field and so we actually have to get off of rivalrous basis so that's one if our new economic system governance system doesn't actually address a rivalrous agency then it is not actually a viable system and the second major cause of self-termination and and just to say when we look at you know all of the different X risks that we can look at today, whether we're looking at um, World War III or resource wars or so much economic inequality that it leads to collapse scenarios or the weaponization of uh, of exponential tech, biotech, nanotech, AI. Those are all exponential tech multiplied by rival risk dynamics leading to, if not existential risk, at least collapse. The other one is that the relation the difference between complicated and complex systems is critical The things that arise by evolution are complex, so a tree an ecosystem our body is complex meaning it self organizes it's not designed by the outside and it self repairs and self evolves We make complicated things, so they're not self organizing we Make a blueprint and then we build it, and it doesn't self repair, self organize, etc. So that, you know, if I break my laptop, it's just broken unless I fix it. If I cut my leg, it heals itself. And if I burn the house that I'm in, it doesn't repair. If I burn a forest, it does repair. So complex systems are anti fragile, complicated systems are fragile. We are converting the complexity of the natural world into a complicated human built world, which means we're converting anti fragility to fragility. And trying to run exponentially more energy through an increasingly fragile, complicated system, and that also self-terminates. So we can call that complicated systems subsuming their complex basis. And so this means that we have to do civilization design and technology in a different way where the relationship between complicated and complex systems doesn't debase the anti-fragility of the complex ones and where the complicated ones don't become unboundedly fragile. So we need an Civilization system that addresses both of those things and an economic system is a part of it and when we say economics we're used to thinking about it in a very like just within the box we've always thought about it economics is about trade but when we think about it in a kind of expanded way we say well one way of looking at it is that economics is actually a collective choice making system. Having more capital means that I can make bigger choices. I can employ other people in carrying out choices that I want to. I can be able to employ resources in doing it. And so capital equals concentrated choice making. And so the idea, right, the kind of laissez-faire idea of why that would be a good collective choice making system is that to get capital, I have to be a productive member of society that produces goods or services that the world wants and brings them to the world uh, with good value. And if I do that, I am actually evolving the collective. And so it's right that I have more choice making because I have kind of earned it, right? It's a meritocratic idea. This is, of course, gibberish because, you know, from the beginning of an inheritor of wealth might have no orientation or capacity to be productive. And another example, I can make money not by being productive, but by being extractive and by externalizing costs. And that's net bad for everybody, but I'm incented to do it. And on and on, right? It's very expensive to innovate. It's very cheap to copy and then be able to scale. And so the idea that those who will have the capital got it by doing things that are net good for the world is just obviously silly. And so we say, wow, it really is a collective choice making system that is just a really shitty collective choice making system. So what are better choice making? Well, to be able to make choices, I have to make sense of the world first. So what is my collective sense making process to know what's going on, what's needed, what what good choices would even look like, and then choice making. So what we think of as governance is also a collective choice making system. It's also a shitty one, even though it was the best one we could do at the time. And so you can't think of economics and governance separately, you have to think about them together, along with also things like media and education that are going to be part of our sense making frameworks and now technology and say, how do we get individual and collective sense making and choice making to be more omni-adaptive. So not just short-term adaptive while externalizing harm to the future or adaptive for this agent while externalizing harm to others, but choices that are omnipositive that engender others making similar omnipositive choices. So we didn't talk about the design yet, we're talking about design constraints, that it has to do these things to actually be able to handle decentralized exponential tech without collapsing. Does that resonate, make sense so far?
1: That makes sense so far. I think the bigger challenge is less so the design versus the transition. It's much harder to build something than it is to break it down. So I feel like the the simplest way for something like this to be implemented wouldn't necessarily be to build it up, but would be in the in the ashes, so to speak. The ashes of collapse of the current system. You know, this is a common type of
0: political thought, which is that there are throughout history, these kind of bottlenecks where a lot of population isn't going to make it through, be the ones to get through the bottleneck and then build on the other side. And I think some of the people in the highest positions of power today are thinking that way and running those strategies. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why that doesn't work. The bottleneck here is one that we, in most scenarios, we don't actually make it through. Yep, that's a big deal. And so being the idea that we can Let it all go to shit, go into our deep underground military bases and then come out and repopulate is probably just actually not viable uh, based on what what the dynamics that would lead to the collapse are and what they do to viable future potentials at all. Obviously, if we talk about things like gray goose scenarios or green goose scenarios or mini bad kind of weaponized biotech scenarios or nuclear scenarios or certain environmental scenarios, The ability to rebuild afterwards is pretty fucked, somewhere between impossible and just really, really lame. And so that's one reason. The other reason is we can already kind of see that the world is collapsed. I mean, it it is already past the inflection point of its adaptive capacity, now deeply in the diminishing returns, not able to actually innovate the solutions that it needs And so, so long as you're not directly trying to threaten it, then
1: there is actually already space to build new things. Do you think that what we're going through now is just the immune system, so to speak, of the planet? Mm, I think it's a metaphor that we can use to say if we do
0: enough harm to the planet that the planet won't support us here anymore. But I, the same thing would happen if we were in a really big spaceship. And it wouldn't be the immune system of the spaceship. It would be a self-terminating system, right? It's actually the way that the agents are interacting with each other in their environment would self-terminate in, in any group of agents in any environment.
1: Because the incentive structure is all wrong. You said you had some thoughts on how this could be redesigned. You were discussing the, the characteristics or the needs. Yeah. before.
0: <clears throat> so I'm not going to try and talk about all of the parts because it's beyond the scope of what we can do today, but I'll give an example of a couple of them. So we need to switch not just from a rival risk dynamic where I can advance my own well-being independent of or at your expense or at the expense of the commons. I have to move that not just to non-rival risk, which just means we're uncoupled, but to anti-rival risk, which means we're positively coupled, which means that better quality of life for anyone happens in ways that are commensurate with better quality of life for everyone in the commons. And before we just say, well, that sounds fucking ridiculous. Just think about a body. And think about the 70 trillion, give or take, cells in a body that are all actually self-organizing, autonomous living agents. And all of them operate from their own bottom-up code, independent of top-down neuroendocrine control, their own bottom-up code. They operate in a way that is good for them and all the cells around them and good for the whole simultaneously. And there is both bottom-up organization of all the cells self-governing and top-down organization of neuroendocrine system taking messages from the whole system and then being able to give messages to coordinate function of the whole system but the bottom the top-down system isn't imposed it emerged from the self organization of the bottom-up system and so you I mean what's good for the lungs is also good for the heart the lungs can't advantage themselves at the expense of the heart but what's good for the lungs is also good for the cells within the lungs right you have this kind of dynamic where you have anti-rivalry at all scales, organ to organ, organ to cell, cell to cell, and so we can see examples of multi-agent systems that work that way and that produce really radical kinds of emergent properties in terms of the intelligence of the systems. So, if we let's take an example of that. When we talk about rivalrous dynamics economically, we talk about rivalrous goods. Rivalrous good is a good where if you Consume it. I no longer have access to it. And so because the good is not shareable, then it creates a possible basis of rivalrous relationship. Right. And consume it might mean consume it and make it no longer useful like food or in the way we currently do economics. Just you possessing something, even if it's still useful, even if I could theoretically use it, but you possessing it so I don't have access to it is still a rivalrous dynamic. And for the most part, we only get access to things by possessing them, which is decreasing the access of others. And so and so that is obviously a rivalrous basis. So let's just take things that are already happening and extend them and say, okay, when we look at something like ride sharing, Uber or Lyft, we see a movement from transportation mediated by a good, owning a car, to mediated by a service, having access to transportation as a service. And... If we imagine something like Uber becoming ubiquitous, where I had quick, easy access to transportation all the time, and it's what everybody did. And now we use a, something like a blockchain to disintermediate the central company and take what well, is the extracted profit and put it back into the whole ecosystem. And then, of course, the cars are self driving and they are. So now we start to think about a uh, ubiquitous transportation service that is actually not centrally owned and yet has the resource processes to get repaired and get developed that it needs. You have just enough cars that there are enough cars for peak demand time plus those to be in service, which would be about a 40th of the total amount of cars there are now in terms of the load that's taken out of the earth, factoring how much, how many cars are sitting unused most of the time. And yet you have a higher quality of transportation service available to everybody. Dude, where's my car? Now, you using the transportation service doesn't decrease my access at all. You having access doesn't fuck up my access at all, so we're non-rivalrous. But if by going places, your generativity increases and the things that you generate also go into these type of commons-based access systems that I will end up having access to, then the more generative you are, the better quality of life I have. So say you are going to a maker studio that you have just full access to, and whatever you make, you're not trying to sell to get money because, say, in a world where everything was structured like this, you already have access to everything that is interesting to have, then you don't differentiate yourself by having stuff. and You don't get status by it. You differentiate yourself by creating stuff. And so the incentive is to create stuff. Obviously, you say, well, who would do the shitty jobs? We have to incent people right now to do the shitty jobs. Obviously, we're depending upon technological automation of the most rote kinds of things. So we de-necessitate extrinsic motive throughout much of the system. But rather than just leave everybody jobless and have all the robot wealth get concentrated up to a small amount of agents, which is a dystopia, we can actually say, oh, that changes the whole theoretical basis of the thing that we had to call the labor economy. That was the basis of both capitalist and communist thought of why we had to create, you know, like the the whole idea there was the communists thought. If we just met everybody's needs, if we split up the resources, met everybody's needs, then who would want to do the shitty jobs? Nobody would want to do them, so the state has to force them, so communism is imperialist. So we're going to let the free market force them, and they just go homeless if they don't do the shitty jobs. And we tell them the story that they can get educated and get better jobs, even though statistically it's very hard to get off the hamster wheel. Now, imagine a scenario where scarcity is not the default, and getting stuff is not the programmed in default that I need to survive and then to you know move up Maslow's hierarchy and self actualize it's just an uninteresting given and so and and then you think about the radical creativity of children that are asking like that want to build stuff and want to ask questions all the time until we break it out of them by putting them in school where we don't facilitate anything they're interested in at all and we try to force them to pay attention to shit they aren't interested in and then break their interest in life where they just want to watch TV or do video games if we When you think about all the great inventors and scientists and artists, they were intrinsically driven by fascination and passion that just somehow hadn't been broken in them, but that everybody has if you had a system that was focused on facilitating it. And so the movement from an extrinsic control and incentive system to an intrinsic drive cultivation system is one of the key things that happens. And so now you make music not to try and get money to have access to shit you already have access to, but because you want to make money and you want the world, I mean, you want to make music and you want the world to hear it, or you want to make technology and you want the world to hear it or whatever it is. So now you having access to the art studio and the science studio and all those things and the retreat place where you can write some great novel increases the wealth of the commons that I have access to. Now we are not non-rivalrous, we're anti-rivalrous. Your increased access leads to my increased access and because we have enough of everything for peak demand time you even consuming something doesn't decrease my ability to consume those things and so we have removed the and and because me having access and you having access to the car cars doesn't have to require owning our own car it requires radically less resource from the world etc So these are examples, and these are very partial, but of how we can start to think about moving from agent misalignment, where you getting something actually means me having less access to agent alignment.
1: So would the primary primary difference between communism in the past and something akin to what you're proposing today just be technological limitations of being able to have higher value and abundance when it comes to both automation and production of goods?
0: No, not at all. That's part of it, but if I say, okay, there's scarce resources, so let's let everybody just compete for them and see who gets what. That's capitalism, and survival of the fittest is how it's going to go, or let's divvy them up and we'll all have kind of an equal share. That's communism. Divvy them up is just an, also a stupid allocation of resource because we still have something where – Okay, so now we just divvied up the scarce pie without engineering the scarcity out of the system without even making an efficient use of the resources. Commons based access is not everybody gets a shitty car. It's the access to everyone has access to better kinds of cars than even the wealthiest people in the world have access to today, because we get to synthesize all the IP. And because they're we're not trying to make something that will go out of style or go obsolete. So we design it for modular upgradability, and etc. So one of the key things is the movement from a lowest common denominator equality of having to a highest possibility wealth of the commons that everyone has generative access to.
1: I think that's what they were trying to do in the past. They just effed it up pretty bad. But that's um, that's beside the point. Is it possible to do something like this without having just one world government? Or can this happen in the current country system?
0: Um, elements can and they are. but you know you're you're going to have things like in Uber that its primary goal is going to be its stock price going up and maximizing its extraction and so even if it puts us in non-rivalrous relationship to each other as far as car access goes it has a net rivalrous relationship with the rest of the economic world and, you know, with its own drivers and et cetera. So within that context, those things are still going to bring over some destructive DNA. Now, you know, when, when you're asking how do we transition, I would say there are three different categories of work that are really important that we can think about. There's protective work, transitional work, and post-transitional prototype work. There, The protective work is how do we prevent fucked up stuff, more fucked up stuff from happening. So, you know, buying the last pieces of virgin forest and protecting them so that they're we still have some biodiversity to repopulate with when we're ready is a super smart intelligent thing to do. Work to decrease risk associated with exponential tech uh is a super smart thing to do, being able to retrofit nuclear plants so that they're more stable. Like all of the protective type of work is really important. And remediation work that is protective. How do we you know, decrease the total amount of nitrogen effluent, causing dead zones that is also protecting against the expansion of those dead zones. That's not going to get us a new world, but it will keep us, it will buy us more time and more world left to work with. And then transitional work is where we're not changing the foundational axioms. We're not changing capitalism. We're not changing democracy. We're not changing countries, but we are transitioning things that can be transitioned that both make The structure is less harmful and more ready for larger changes. And so, you know, blockchain and the whole movement to decentralize where the areas that are currently very extractive, being able to disintermediate a bunch of financial services so that that wealth goes back into the market for everyone. That's an example of a kind of transitional play that is actually relevant and good. Now, that doesn't mean that decentralization is always good, there's plenty of problems associated with it. But there are a number of transitional technologies that can happen. There are some, you know, conscious capitalism as a whole is transitional. How can we kind of retrofit capitalism to be able to use market-driven solutions to do good things. And all of that's relevant. Then you've got how do we prototype new systems that meet the design criteria of necessary and sufficient design for long-term viability. And that actually happens at a design and prototyping level. All of those things need to be happening
1: concurrently by people that are oriented to do those types of work. And they also need to be able to iterate and adapt. I imagine civilization design, much like launching a startup, is not what you expect it to be when you first start out. Totally. How can we deal with that if we, it is people's lives on the line? Say more? What do you mean? So it's easy enough if you launch a startup and realize, oh, we need to change this a little bit. We need to focus not on walking people's dogs, but we need to walk their cats. And instead of doing it, we have other people do it, et cetera, just kind of iterating on ideas. But when it comes down to designing a system both with blockchain and with more of what you're describing in terms of uh, an access or a resource-based type economy. How can we do that and not have a situation where setting something up is ultimately setting it up for failure because it wasn't fine-tuned correctly enough?
0: Yeah, I would say that it is a combination of much better analysis of the actual nature of the problems. And so that our thinking on necessary and sufficient design criteria is actually really good thinking. And then also the right type of experimentation and iteration process. What is a uh, minimum prototype? And then how do we learn from it and iterate quickly enough? And so it it has to be both much, much better design thinking up front and good iterative design process. What's a minimum
1: prototype in your opinion?
0: Uh, For civilization?
1: Yeah, for civilization, for a city, for a government.
0: Well, so it depends on what we're prototyping. Obviously, you know, we could prototype. I'll give you, for instance, I have a friend named Nelson Del Rio who has a really brilliant capitalism hack that's transitional that I think is, uh, should be implemented a lot. And basically it's a very sophisticated way being able to do development where you're designing whole markets and whole ecosystems and binding them together because we said it was the you know asymmetrical unbinding that was a problem so you know you go to a developing world and typically what happens is the government is broke it needs some money for something it has some asset like oil or metals or something like that that is a very high profit extractable item a multinational comes in and says we'll give you the money that you need if we get uh, the rights to this and they the government signs over the rights they multinational extracts the super high profitability thing, externalizes all the cost to the area and the people, and now they have no ability to solve that, and they have to try and pay for nonprofit money. If you looked at being able to have the government not give the rights to that because it had another access to the immediate capital that it needed, and it was going to bundle together the things that had very high profit potential with things that needed subsidized, where the entire bundle was still net profitable, but the high profits subsidizing the other things like say, education and rural healthcare and some infrastructure development allows healthy development of the whole system. And then you also bundle dealing with externalities with ways of monetizing that. So there's a sewer that's dumping heaps of sewage, killing the whole ecosystem. A a better sewage system doesn't have a market viable approach because people won't pay for it right now. Government doesn't have money to do it. But we identify that there used to be a fishing industry that generated $10 million a year that has died because of the sewage, and that if we put a better sewer system on, the fishing industry would come back. We'd be able to generate $10 million a year sustainably from that That. Pays for the cost of doing the sewage system, and we bundle those together. We can create a whole kind of ecosystem bundle, underwrite the thing, and have the government um, agree to do that. The underwriting agency raises the funds and gets them to the government, and now you don't have this extreme extractive kind of thing. Like that's an example of a transitional system prototype that can happen at the scale of a local region in a developing world. And, you know, it's basically a single operating agreement, and you can create a radically better developing world. That's one example of, say, a minimum prototype of a transitional economic system where you're basically binding economics with law. If you want to say what's the minimum prototype of a ground up full stack civilization, the minimum prototype is where it doesn't need any import to be a high tech civilization, which means it creates its own biotech and its own consumer electronics and its own airplanes. And the minimum scale that can do that is a city state. So basically, it's sovereign, so state, but based at a city level, a city is actually a self organizing system A country isn't it's arbitrary, but cities are actually natural emergent phenomena all over the world where all the things that are necessary for life end up co emerging. And so a city state scale, full stack civilization is the minimum prototype. But of course, to even have the people who know how to do this social dynamics in that world, like lawyers as they're currently trained and judges and bankers and politicians would have no role in that world because we'd be changing the economic and judicial governance systems enough that it's totally new training in in civics and all those things. So how do we develop those new systems and how do the people get trained in them? That'll obviously happen at smaller scales that are not, that still depend on import. We're still, you know, on uh, bought laptops and flying on other people's planes, but that are prototyping some of the civilization design and and getting the things like the structures that are needed that don't exist yet developed to be able to boot the larger ones. So you've got a you know, minimum scale for a full prototype, but then you have minimum scale to get the parts together to be able to do that. And so reverse engineer.
1: When I listen to how you describe this, I would say categorically China seems much closer than the U.S. in terms of what you're aiming towards or who has the potential to reach this. China has... More coherence of a certain kind
0: because it has stronger top down control, and so it's using top down control, choosing a singleton force to keep multipolar dynamics in check and bottom up dynamics can't address multipolar dynamics as long as the bottom up dynamics have a rivalrous basis you You always get tragedy of the commons and arms races and things like that, but it is if you have a top down system that is not is not emergent then it is both fragile and disenfranchises the individual agents. And so in some ways, China could use that force to that top down force to build new systems that transcend itself. It doesn't seem that that is the direction it's on.
1: Okay, fair enough. I don't think anyone's very close to what you're talking about. I think Scandinavian countries would have to be probably the furthest along just because they're the most socialized and also the most economically successful. So it makes it a little bit easier.
0: Scandinavian countries and Japan, um, the countries that have the best education technology, low violence, you know, clean cities, they're very small populations, and they're very homogeneous populations. And it's much easier to create coherence in small homogeneous populations. It's much harder. And they're also small land sizes to be able to create coherence across a lot of cultural distance and geographic distance and population size actually requires different types of social technology than the ones that are employed there. But yes, they obviously have the highest quality of life metrics across a number of quality of life metrics currently. You take places like Iceland that overthrew their banking system that are quite small, they could actually do a really profound kind of prototype. Or when you say rebuild from the ashes, You know, some very small countries, island countries, Cuba, whatever, that are in a position to say, hey, we're not actually invested in what we have that much. We could build something new. That's
1: also interesting. If you were pulling the strings today for a large country or superpower, what would be your first couple of moves? It's a very hard question because you're you're
0: saying if I put you in the position of trying to steer the system that is itself the problem and... I don't know if you've ever um, read The the Dictator's Handbook. There's a really great cartoon made about it called Rules for Rulers. But even with top-down control, I can't do things too radical that the rest of the base that supports me doesn't understand, or I get taken out of power in a hurry, right? So I have to appeal to my current base of power to be able to stay in a position of power. And so if I'm at the top of a current state, which is a power structure, I have to be playing the power game effectively. So. I don't know what could actually be done. It's mostly not how I think. But, you know, obviously things like, I mean, this is now just cliche, things that would involve uh, being able to, well, I'll give you a, I'll actually give you an example. Here's something where you couldn't, you would be fucking up your power base. I would make the military industrial complex not for profit. I would remove the perverse incentive of the largest block of the global economy needing war. and. Try and do that. Now I would get kicked out if I tried to do that because I would totally fuck up way too many vested interests. But those are the types of moves where you're not just creating a policy that can be changed again easily, but trying to change deeper underlying system dynamics to create perverse incentive.
1: And I think our elected officials are certainly not helping in most of those regards. If you were a student today, what would you study? What would you focus on?
0: Well, on the elected officials thing, capitalism plus representative government together will always be crony capitalism, because you're putting an agent within the economic system in the position to make decisions for the economic system as a whole, but they can't stop being an agent within it, right? And so someone can always offer them a backdoor deal that says, Legislate in this way, and you know, we'll fill up your your offshore Swiss bank account, and even more, we'll we'll just I mean, even more simply, we'll give the campaign budgets to get you reelected, and try and do the other thing, and we will put all of the lobbyists on our payroll to stop you, and we'll fund the other guy winning. And so, because lobbyists are paid for, and they're the ones who are changing law, and because campaign budgets cost money, and because the Choice making agents are themselves also economic actors. The whole structure of that is that the economics ends up corrupting the governance.
1: Do you think we'd have a better system where it was a lottery? We just pick people out of a hat. Probably
0: there. I haven't thought about that. There would be pros and cons to it. Obviously, the people would have no uh, training, but they would also not have been trained in the really dreadful things and conditioned in that way. So it would be
1: an interesting experiment. I was talking to someone previously, and they were discussing how that would also be a democracy. It wouldn't be a democracy where you voted, but it would be one where we agreed upon a, a common system. That is a democracy for electing people. Could yeah. I ask, so yeah. when we think about that,
0: so just a couple things on democracy. So to get everyone to agree on something, you have to have not that many people. Like we said, small, homogeneous populations have a much easier time doing that. Tribes had consensus type systems because you couldn't have the kind of polarity of right and left hating each other in a tribe where they would depended on each other, right? Like you couldn't have anyone feeling super disenfranchised by a choice where everybody had to pull and was working in it. So the reason for the Dunbar number, the reason that tribes stayed capped at a small number was everybody had to be able to sit in a circle and talk long enough that we heard what everybody knew and thought and felt and cared about and could come up with a synergistic satisfier for everybody. That's why they're capped in size. As soon as you get a lot of people, not everybody can be involved in the decision making because we can't get everybody to uh, – we can't get everyone to agree because we can't get everyone to communicate because there's no communication dynamics that work at scale. So then some people end up ruling for everyone else, and that's the history of civilization, of top-down control systems. And then we're like, well, hey, rather than just have a small number of people ruling everyone, what if we at least had most of the people agree on something? That seems like it's more fair and so democracy. But To even be able to do that, to to have everyone vote, you have to have them vote on something fairly simple, right? Like yes or no on a proposition, or this candidate or this candidate, because they can't actually engage the large population in a conversation that can generate new ideas. So there's this idea that we all get a vote, but we get a vote of propositions that we weren't involved in creating, and of officials that we weren't uh, involved in picking, and so there's frame control. And so you get kind of, you kind of get a vote within frame control. And who is it that's creating the propositions is always vested interests. And so it's not really a collective intelligence system, right? It is a, the other thing is to the process of making propositions that are binary, yes, no, that are going to be made by some group that is focused on something that they care about, that will be less than everything impacted is why every proposition is good for something and bad for something else, which is why some people like it and some people don't like it. And the act of voting on things that benefit one thing and harm another is inherently polarizing. And so the structure of democracy leads to polarization because of in-groups and out-groups getting created around a bad proposition that's based on a theory of trade-offs. And so what about a collective intelligence system that actually figures out what a good proposition would be first isn't made by vested interests. that actually does collective sense making around what is needed and what's good before doing collective choice making. Like those would be in the spirit of what we think of as democracy better. The thing that we have is you can't really it's not a very effective kind of democracy because you don't have sense making before choice making and you don't have real choice making a very limited choice making within within constraints that are framed, controlled by vested interests, and that are always polarizing.
1: So the, the moral of the story is more better and more transparent and open conversation among people. Yes. And that solves the majority of the problems, at least when people start talking about the problems, without resorting to violence, hate, aggression, or hiding.
0: Obviously, if we are making choices that inter-affect each other, then we need processes of communicating with each other to come to agreements and of what good choices would be. And at the scale of a tribe, we know how to do it. It's our evolved capacity. We haven't known how to do it at larger scale. And all the communication technologies that have scale have been built by capitalisms and nation states, built by rivalrous dynamics to extend rivalrous power, right? That's why they're broadcast one direction, communication channels, where what goes on them is something that generates more resources so that I can keep broadcasting. But one of the things that will give us new governance capacities is new communication technologies. It's not a given that they'll be developed for that purpose. We have to develop them for that purpose. But the kind of communication technologies that can do collective sense making to inform collective choice making, blockchain is obviously something that can do at least parts of that. Make the possibility of being able to have the kind of dynamics that happened at
1: a tribe actually happen at scale. Do you think we're moving towards a world of thousands of micro governments Um, or one one mega government?
0: Does your body have lots of different organs and tissues or is it one body? I like it. You don't have 70 trillion cells in one blob. You have layers of self-organization, but the whole thing is also self-organizing. So you do have governance at the macro scale, but you have governance at all of the scales, all the way down to individuals actually self-governing
1: well. I want to transition a little bit. I know we've been talking for a bit. So part of what we like to do on Fringe FM is get the world's most interesting folks and talk about not just their expertise, but the the tangentially related topics that they're interested or excited in. So what, outside of your traditional work, are you most fascinated, excited, or scared of? Um, uh, that's, that's a lot of different possible ways to go with that. So
0: I am I'm simultaneously fascinated by and scared of all areas of advanced technology because they, I'm fascinated because they offer I'm, I'm fascinated and scared because they offer increased choice making capacity, which is obviously exciting if we make good choices and sucks if we make shitty choices. And within a the current choice making framework, I'm more scared, actually, of mini exponential techs than excited, but in the right context, very excited about it. A lot of work in biotech and kind of the future of functional medicine and regenerative medicine is an area I spend a lot of time and a lot of interest, uh, foundational philosophy, and our our ability to actually understand the nature of reality, what reality is, and of ourselves and the relationship between ourself and reality, and to navigate it well, I would say is like the most foundational interest that everything else uh, is always in relationship with, which, of course, also looks like consciousness studies and things we call personal development. I'm a pretty interested person. I, my, I, if Growing up, I would suffer from overwhelm with too many interests.
1: What was the structure like and how did that create you?
0: I was homeschooled by really awesome parents who wanted to do an educational experiment and see what happens if you give a kid no curriculum at all and just expose them to interesting things and then facilitate whatever they're interested in. So I never learned how to spell really. Uh, I never developed good handwriting. There were certain areas of study that I, I didn't go into that a lot of people do. But the areas of study that I was interested in, which was all of the sciences and all the philosophic traditions, I got to study very deeply. And because I wasn't focused on things I wasn't being forced to focus on things I wasn't interested in and I, and my interests were facilitated my interest in life was growing in the process of of that and so yeah that was a that was an early start
1: with that when did you become interested or we could also say obsessed with functional medicine and self enhancement
0: I I actually got interested in those topics early because when I was a kid my younger brother had a period where he started having pretty Significant behavioral disorders. He was a little four or five year old kid, violence, and he got diagnosed with uh, psychiatric uh, diagnosis and Tourette's. And the allopathic approach was to put him on a number of psych meds, and they said he, you know, he might be on a path towards institutionalization. And my mom took him to uh, Dr. Bosancla, a Ayurvedic healer, who gave him some herbs and told him to avoid a couple foods he was allergic to, and he corrected completely in a month, and those issues never came back. And that was the entry point. And then a couple of years later, my mom had an incurable autoimmune disease and the drug reaction to it uh, put her in the hospital and they said she'd die that night. I was, again, a young kid and she didn't die. And they said she'd never walk and she walked. Uh, she went to that same doctor and she healed completely. And so I got to see the inadequacies of modern medicine for things other than acute, acute issues. And that there were other approaches that were quite meaningful, so then I actually went and got trained as a massage therapist when I was 13, and got into different systems of body work and then started studying nutrition, and, and had always been interested in meditation and spiritual practice. And so that just kind of deepened throughout my life, and people near me would have illnesses, and that would lead me to study solutions until so, you know I actually uh, got diagnosed with an incurable autoimmune condition and that drove me much deeper into the study because i had to figure out how to resolve it and but this was after already having a background in a lot of biosciences and uh, complexity thinking and uh, was able to think about how the body as a self-organizing system actually self-organizes how it self-regulates better and um, how does self-regulation break down, and how can we support the body's, rather than override the body's regulatory capacity, right? Someone's blood pressure is high, so we give them a med to lower it, or their cholesterol is high, we give them something to lower it, rather than ask why is the body not regulating well, and how do we actually support its own regulatory capacity and address why it's not regulating well? Which obviously, again, we have the perverse incentive of the fact that to get a drug through FDA approval costs a billion dollars. And so I'm only going to do that on a drug I can patent to ever be able to make my money back. To patent it, it has to be a synthetic molecule, which means it wasn't part of how you were healthy before you got ill. And so studying health and then how to support endogenous structures, there's actually no money for. And so yeah, so then I figured out how to correct that for myself. And that led
1: me down a whole train of functional medicine work. I think you should plug your podcast here because it's very relevant and I don't think we could go down all of those rabbit holes.
0: Yeah, so we have a podcast called Collective Insights and uh, it's also on our website, neurohacker.com, and talk about a number of topics related to human health and thriving and
1: development there. And you're a pretty high performer. What's your daily routine look like? Uh, my daily routine
0: is interesting. It's not It's not the routine that I would suggest for most people. I am nocturnal. I have always been nocturnal. I Parents said I was nocturnal as a when I was first born. And I have, of course, put myself on diurnal schedules many times from university and whatever. But my schedule always comes back. My most creative time is when everyone's asleep at night. And I'm actually healthy. My circadian rhythm is altered, but I have a healthy circadian rhythm when I, you know, test my cortisol, melatonin, and all like that. Most people are diurnal. They do much better with a regular and earlier sleep schedule. That's why I said I wouldn't recommend it. But yeah, I I mean, I do most of the things that are generally good practices for people to do, like have a morning routine that involves meditation and exercise and then planning the day ahead and have a wind down routine at night and have practices to take care of various areas of health in my body and, you know, things like that.
1: What time do you wake up every day? I thought you were kidding about the nocturnal thing earlier.
0: Nope. I, um, I usually go to bed around three and wake up at 11. I neglected sleep for too many years. And that's not a good thing to do. And so I don't do that anymore. And I would be on a later schedule, except my life currently needs to meet with people. And if I wake up much later than that, I just don't have enough hours in the day that overlap with
1: other people to meet with them. Interesting. I saw I saw a job description you put out for an executive assistant recently. And it was the most it was the most badass job description profile I've ever seen. How do you prioritize what you focus on? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say
0: that getting good at and continuously better at that is one of the critical things that everybody needs to invest in. So I I kind of categorize my life. So I can think about you know my two major projects is the work in biotech and, and medicine and the work in civilization design, and then my personal life. So I kind of think of those three buckets. And then I have primary areas of focus in each of those and like within my personal life there's obviously subdivisions of physical health and evolution of my learning and my family relationships and my marriage and you know other relationships and and so i think i look at the picture of my whole life and which is my mission and how my values show up in all of the areas of my life and the health and integrity of the whole thing And, you know, some things need to happen in each of those areas daily or weekly or monthly or as needed. And one of the things I find is that it's hard for us to hold the whole picture with our life. And so we just get pretty reactive most of the time. And we'll be focused on some area, we're really focused on fitness, but we're kind of like letting our relationship slip or our finances slip or not tending to our mind as much and notice we're getting more stressful thought patterns, or not focused on our creativity or whatever it is. And so then we whatever area is screaming gets our attention. And then we're neglecting something else. And we're kind of flip flopping between the broken areas. Or to get something done, we just decide to have areas of our life chronically deficient, which ends up making us the kind of unbalanced person that doesn't actually think as as clearly and holistically. So the ability to hold the whole picture of our life and maintain the whole thing, and then we might only advance one or two areas at a time, but then if we can maintain the area, whatever we advance and prevent regress, this is one of the big things is like, maintenance is not sexy, and yet, Typically, we advance in an area, and then we slip back, and we advance and slip back, so we get not that much net progress. So if we can hold all the areas of our life in at least maintenance, and then as we make progress in areas, hold that maintenance, then we can actually have a balanced life and make progress in a lot of areas over time.
1: Yeah, it's like cooking with multiple burners. You turn the heat up and down depending on what you're focused on. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. I know I've had you for a while, and you've got a lot you've got to get back to. I have one last question we ask every guest, and that is, what's something you'd like to leave an, our, our audience with? A quote, an action item, something to look into? So th-
0: there's so many things that come up. So the first one that came to mind was for people to study the things they're interested in more. And if they're interested in topics like this conversation, like how do we make the world better in civilization design, actually spend time talking to people about it and researching good thought that has happened on those topics and also knowing that if the solutions were figured out they would be implemented and so there is actually work for you to do here and if you feel called to it like the The difference between the people who invented the shit that the rest of the world uses and the people who didn't was they actually cared about those things existing enough and believed in their own capacity to do something that had never been done, that they worked at something they didn't know how to do and didn't give up when they failed long enough that they actually figured out how to do it. And if you feel called to make a difference in the world in an area that is needed, that isn't currently being tended to, it can be figured out and you can figure it out if you are earnest enough. Persistence is the most powerful and important trait in my opinion. One must be persisting about the right things. Fair point. It's very easy to persist at doing the thing that society or our parents told us to do without really thinking meaningfully about, is this actually ours to do? And it's also easy to keep persisting rather than reflect on why it's going wrong. So we're, we're not being very intelligent in the approach. So it's the combination of clarity of what is yours to do, what you actually really care about. So the fuel is love. And... Um, persistence and intelligence, paying attention so that you're persisting on the right things in the right ways.
1: Very well said. As always, Daniel, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. It's been quite an interesting conversation. We'll have it have you on to discuss some of your other topics at another time. Matt, this was really good. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And where's the best place for people to find you, learn a, lo- a little bit more about what you do?
0: So I have a blog where I write on some of these civilization topics. It's called civilizationemerging.com. And then if people are interested in some of the thoughts on biotech, the, you know going to neurohacker.com and checking out the podcast is a good idea.
1: We believe credibility is king. You may have noticed that French FM, unlike most other podcasts, isn't filled with three minutes of ads at the beginning and end of every episode for comfy mattresses, better hiring or conferencing software, or robotic doorbells. And that's not that advertisers haven't asked. The thing is, if we tried to sell you on buying our advertisers' products, that would require deception and a level of misalignment and lack of open transparency and trust that we think podcasting in this medium necessitates. Would you trust someone who turned around and tried to sell you shit? We wouldn't. The online ads-based ecosystem is killing our political and societal world. We're used to getting something for nothing and are thus stuck in a clickbaity society of Trumpian tweets focused on extracting attention and avoiding the real meaningful issues and conversations. To fix this, we need to start paying for things that we value. Otherwise, it's all BuzzFeed from here on out. So before you go, if you like Fringe FM and believe our mission to be important, consider making a tax-deductible donation. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. That means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would drastically boost the level of good that we can do in the world and the quality of show we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give for more information. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.